All right, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson. My mission is to raise awareness of trauma and to support and inspire new trauma therapists just starting out on the trauma-informed journey. I do that with my membership community, Trauma Therapist 2.0, my online courses and workshops, and the Trauma Therapist newsletter. If you're a therapist of any kind and you work with individuals who've been impacted by trauma, I invite you to head on over to my website at thetraumatherapistproject.com. That's thetraumatherapistproject.com. All right, let's get started. So five, four, three, two, and one. All right, folks, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. I am very excited to have as my guest today, Francoise Mathieu. Francoise, welcome. Thank you. All right. So for Francoise, uh, before becoming a specialist in organizational stress and trauma-exposed work, Francoise worked as a frontline mental health provider in a variety of complex settings, including providing employee assistance to members of the Canadian military. Over the last 25 years, she has worked with law enforcement, military personnel, healthcare, child welfare, social services, addiction support, education, and other professionals in need of psychological support. As a child of two French-Canadian educators, Francoise spent her early years in, oh boy, Nunavik in Arctic, Quebec. Growing up in the Arctic had a powerful impact on her view of the world and shaped her social justice lens towards exploring the potentially negative impact of provider impairment, burnout, and empathic strain on all members of the community. Francoise is now the executive director of TEND, that's spelled T-E-N-D, whose aim is to offer consulting and training to professionals on topics related to secondary trauma, empathic strain, burnout, and organizational health. Francoise, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So let's start. Where where are you from originally and where are you now presently? <laughs> right. So uh, currently I'm in Kingston, Ontario, which is basically, if you go to upstate New York, I'm just half an hour across the border. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we, we say we're the center of the world because we're a small community and we're halfway between Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa. So kind of kind of in there. Uh, it's a community that has a large military base and a very, we're the prison capital of Canada. So we're an interesting community for me to have worked in for the last 25 years because wow. there are a lot of high stress, high trauma workplaces. But I am originally from Quebec based, you can tell from my name and my accent. And uh, as was mentioned in my bio, I, I, I was born in Northern Quebec and then I've lived uh, in lots of different places, including Sweden, New York City, England, pretty much all, all over the place. Awesome. Awesome. So, all right. Currently, you're the executive director of TEND. What do they do? What does TEND do? So we're, I would call ourselves a boutique consulting firm, and uh, it's had various iterations, <laughs> but really 20 years ago, I started this company with a colleague. We were both service providers. We were both frontline crisis workers. And we started noticing a real erosion in the well-being of service providers. We were not particularly interested in, you know, bubble baths. And I mean, I have nothing against those, but we were interested <laughs> to go beyond self-care. We were really concerned about the erosion of empathy in service providers and how that might impact our citizens, especially our most vulnerable folks. All right. I'm frantically getting my pen here and I'm writing the term beyond self-care. Does TEND stand for something? 
No, it's not an acronym. Okay. It really is more a verb, you know, to tend to ourselves while we tend to others. Okay. And let me ask you first, what do you mean by beyond self-care? So one of the things we started seeing, and now it's based in evidence, obviously, is what people do Friday night doesn't interest me. Like I, I always say, you want to watch seven episodes of Breaking Bad and drink a whole bottle of wine? Maybe not great, but it's not what we do after our work days. What we now know is what matters is how we engage with the work. What are our day-to-day -day working conditions? What are the, the ways in which we mitigate, you know, the challenges and all sorts of barriers to serving others? And so what started happening, as you know, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to make a leap that you and I are probably of a similar generation. In the 90s and even in the early aughts, there was such an emphasis on individual self-care as a, as a clinician's responsibility, mm -hmm. right? The message was, well, guy, if you had better work-life balance, you wouldn't be burnt out. And I started seeing that as actually incredibly problematic and potentially really quite blaming of individuals. And I think the pandemic has shown us that um, this isn't just about individual wellness practices. It's about how do we engage in this work as a community and as systems, that's what matters. Whether people are doing yoga or not, I believe in yoga, I think it's good for us. But it turns out those are not the most important factors. And for organizations to exclusively focus on well-being, mm -hmm. you know, take care of yourselves at lunch or after work is actually deeply problematic, in my opinion. Okay. So what what is the or one of the solutions if it's not solely individual health self-care? What is it? What are you interested in? Sure. Um, I, I have definitely lots of thoughts about that, but the, the short version would be confidence and competence. So what we see when we look at the burnout literature, I'm going to use burnout as the umbrella term, although it's not my favorite, but I think most people understand it. The rates of burnout in service providers is actually higher at the start of our careers. So it's not actually the 25 year plus clinician or service provider or police officer that burns out. It's often people in the early stages or mid stages of their career. And so one of the things we know, and I know that your interest is in trauma informed practice. If, if we receive good training at the start, if we receive good mentoring, which we know has gone by the wayside because people are so busy. Mm -hmm. If I feel confident and competent at the start of my career, if I get good uh, mentorship so that I can learn through my mistakes, that is what is protective in my opinion. If I do good work, but secondly, if I have good support at work from my community of practice, to deal with the moral distress of the fact that we will never be able to help everyone. There will always be people who fall through the cracks. Those are the elements in addition to obviously the impact of hearing difficult stories that I really believe are essential so that we can continue to do this work, which is incredibly challenging and also deeply rewarding. I, I love trauma work. It is my passion, but it can't be done without support and good training. So, if, if I'm hearing you correctly or interpreting you correctly, it sounds like you're advocating for a, a, a promotion or strengthening of one's kind of inner core confidence mm -hmm. and competence, as opposed to uh, kind of tacking on these self-care things like yoga or journaling, which are great in and of themselves, mm -hmm. but that's not where you're, you're, you're suggesting the emphasis should be. 
That's correct. And, you know, not to be glib, but we call it putting lipstick on a pig. If you put right. lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. Right. And, <laughs> right. and I love pigs, but, right. you know, what we also started seeing, which has been really amplified, as you can imagine, the last two years have been incredibly busy for us. There's so much demand for our services. And one of the things we started seeing was um, it's been called muffin, muffin rage. And muffin rage is a, a well-meaning wellness person, let's say in a busy hospital that brings the critical care nurses, you know, a bunch of smile cookies or muffins at this time, I can assure you that although it's well-meaning, it's really not going to land well, because that's not what people need at this time. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's pause here. How the heck did you get in, interested in this field? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, accidentally. So uh, because I grew up in the North, uh, my father, this is a long story, which I, I won't go into, but my father had uh, been slated to become a Catholic priest. He left the priesthood. He left his entire church. In fact, I was not raised in a religious world, but my father had some pretty significant trauma, if you will, from that experience. And what stayed with him, though, was the importance of being of service. So that didn't go by the wayside. So I grew up with a very profound um, languaging from my parents about being of service and recognizing our privilege. So that was kind of the foundation. Um, I was exposed to some traumatic situations. Um, some of you may or may not remember, but uh, in 1989, there was a massacre in Montreal. And um, I, I wasn't involved directly, but I knew people who had been, who were you know, murdered at the time. And something happened in my workplace where again, I wasn't there, but there was a mass shooting in my workplace. And I became really interested, if you don't mind that expression, about uh, the impact of trauma. And then I subsequently went and did my master's degree. And I was always, I don't know, I think I'm always an oppositional person. I was never designed to work for, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I, I doubt and I question everything all the time. And I think I learned really early on that I was seeing a lot of my clients be re-victimized by the system. And, you know, I might take someone to a hospital emergency ward and see a really burnt out nurse, not treat them with respect. And my conclusion was not what the heck is wrong with that nurse. My conclusion was, how can we better support this person? There's got to be a reason. They didn't go into nursing because they disliked human beings, right? So I think very early on, I always had kind of that bigger system questioning about how can we change the way that we evolve in this field? So how did you arrive or discover or uncover the importance of competence and confidence? So that came out of some, so I'm very fortunate. I belong to a wonderful think tank and a community of practice in the field of secondary traumatic stress. And one members of that think tank is actually based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and his name is Dr. Brian Miller. And Brian Miller um, has actually just written a beautiful book on secondary trauma. And he wrote a beautiful paper a few years ago called Career, I'm not going to get the right title, but it was a book about uh, an article about career sustaining behaviors. And he started exploring what is it that sustains us to stay well in the field of helping and I became really intrigued by that. I wanted to know more. What does this mean? What are career sustaining behaviors? Mm -hmm. And that led me through a, 
a very enjoyable rabbit hole <laughs> of research about um, there's two great uh, papers. They have the best titles, so I just have to share them with you because they're so excellent. One of them is called uh, Navigating the Binds of um, Necessary Evils. So sometimes there's some things we have to do that are harmful or hurtful, but they're necessary. And the next one was the Dirty Work Study. <laughs> Not a great title. Okay. The dirty the dirty work study. And they were both basically saying people who work in fields that have an occupational taint, right? Um, personal injury lawyers, um, apparently all social workers, <laughs> I don't know why. but you know, people who do uh, debt collection, what have you, uh, funeral directors. They basically studied these folks and said, what is it that allows you to still enjoy the work and gets and get rewards out of it? And out of that, confidence and competence, in addition to other elements, really stood out in all of those studies. Interesting. So when you work with companies that come to you, uh, a lot of their staff, uh, a lot of their, their, their people are experiencing burnout, how do you execute? Mm -hmm. So the question is, it depends who is coming to us. So sometimes it used to be grassroots, right? It used to be at the very beginning, 10 years ago, it would be more individual champions from various kind of lower levels of the hierarchy who would come to us. That has changed and we are now getting very senior leadership who are finally, I think, really understanding that this needs to be addressed and that this is not superfluous. This is not an afterthought. Mm -hmm. So now what we're having is, uh, you know, often very senior leadership, like, you know, a, a CEO, vice president, uh, you know, very senior leadership come to us. And then what we design for them will really depend on the size of the agency, of course, but we really want to create champions of change. But the thing that we often caution leaders, you know, we, we caution them not to do what we call spray and pray. So do you mind if I give you a, a concrete example? No, I, I was going to ask you for one. Go ahead, please. Okay. <laughs> So at, at, I, the pandemic's gone on so long, I'm losing track, but it would have been um, the fall of 2020. Um, as you know, you know long-term care nursing homes were absolutely decimated and a very well-meaning organization contacted us saying, we want to throw in a way, we wanna offer these webinars. Notice my Freudian slip throw. We wanna offer these webinars that are incredibly burnt out staff. While I can assure you that nobody came right? That was not what they needed at the time. And so what we're really spending time with leadership, you know, with leadership thinking about is what is the right thing that you need at this mm -hmm. time? And what they need every time right now is leadership needs to actually understand and become literate in these concepts first, as opposed to kind of say, well, I don't need this training. I'm going to, you know, get my frontline staff to take it as a gift. And what the research is showing is leaders are often the most burnt out members of an organization. And so we're really kind of doing top down, bottom up, and kind of in the middle, mm -hmm. depending on how open and flexible the workplaces are, that makes sense. Okay. So sometimes it's just a little seed mm -hmm. that we plant and we hope it takes. And other places they are hiring us to do a fulsome organizational health assessment intervention and so on and so forth. So going back to your example, they uh, didn't need these webinars and these webinars were, the topics were what? Like self-care type things or? Uh, 
No, God, I don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, the webinars that we do, uh, we have some on moral distress. We have some on foundations of secondary trauma, kind of understanding secondary traumatic stress and compassion fatigue. We have some on navigating the COVID fog. So we created a whole series specific to the pandemic. Um, I mean, we have about 10 different webinars and they're excellent. The content is great if people have the bandwidth mm -hmm. to receive them. And there are times where currently, for example, in Canada, I'm sure it's true in the States too, but currently all hands on deck, especially in healthcare, people do not have the bandwidth for that. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll do in that instance is more do advising at the leadership level about best ways to provide day-to-day -day support for their teams, as opposed to offering a training, if that makes sense. Day-to-day -day support. Okay. So what is, but what does that look like? Day-to-day -day mm -hmm. support. Are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever you need it. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code the Trauma Therapist. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code the Trauma Therapist to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. Going Inside is a new podcast on a mission to help you heal from trauma and connect with your authentic self. Hosted by licensed trauma therapist John Clark, this show explores trauma healing through the lens of internal family systems therapy with detours into EMDR, somatic experiencing, and much more. Tune in for enlightening guest expert interviews, immersive solo deep dives, real therapy sessions, and soothing guided meditations. Head on over to johnclarktherapy.com slash podcast or search for Going Inside with John Clark on your favorite podcast platform. Once again, head on over to johnclarktherapy.com forward slash podcast or search for Going Inside with John Clark on your favorite podcast platform. Well, so this doesn't make me super popular with senior leaders, but I can tell you what the research shows, and then we can explore the art of the possible. <laughs> what makes a really big difference is control over your schedule. So an example would be, uh, my daughter's partner is a nurse in a maximum security prison here. So we talk about that all the time with his shifts, right? So he doesn't mind working 12-hour shifts. He was built for that. Mm -hmm. But what he really appreciates is being able to have some modicum of control over how he works those shifts. Mm -hmm. So flexibility where he can swap with someone else, you know, all of kind of those elements, um, giving people truly time off to restore themselves. I know some of these are people will say to me, we're short staff, that's impossible. But if we want to actually create a sustainable workforce, flexibility makes a huge difference good quality training, but also good feedback, like when we did a good job. And what you're going to find, guys, what the, the research shows is that, of course, being well paid is nice. 
I'm not minimizing that, but it doesn't even factor in our top 10 wish list when we talk to, to service providers. Sure, they want to be paid, but they'd actually rather have control over their schedule over an increase in pay. Mm-hmm. So where does the topic of secondary stress come out, come into this? Hmm. So the way I visualize it, I'm a very visual person, and we actually created a Venn diagram of all these overlapping circles that we think of as contributing factors. So it could be what's going on in your personal life, your working conditions, so on and so forth. Secondary traumatic stress is a huge contributing factor, particularly obviously with our high trauma workplaces, right? So, uh, I mean, you know the list as well as I do, but what we find is that that can really hitch a ride with folks in terms of also not having a place to process those difficult stories. So as a trauma Mm -hmm. worker, I've heard tens of thousands of difficult stories. It was more having something to offer them, right? So if I hear a difficult story and I have a great resource or somewhere for them to go, that's not going to be as distressing for me. Having a good debriefing protocol where if you know a story has really hitched a ride with me, when I worked with the military, you can imagine I might come home one day and be full of stories of the war in Iraq mm-hmm. or you know the genocide in Rwanda. I needed a transition ritual to put that somewhere so I could go home and take care of my family. So we're really focusing on micro, micro strategies, kind of real grounding skills, but not just after, before, during, and after your interactions, if that makes sense. How is a lot of this, or how is the language that you're using and what you're proposing uh, landing with uh, the, the military? I mean, my, my initial take is that a lot of it is just antithetical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And um, let's add law enforcement in there. I actually do a lot of work with law enforcement and uh, I actually really enjoy it. And I enjoy, I enjoy the challenge. So because I worked for 10 years as a civilian in the military, I got to learn what were the barriers and the barriers, as you know, is fear, it's stigma, These are still heavily male dominated professions, but at the end of the day, you know, when you get to be face to face with an individual and they feel safe, they are truly, and they can be vulnerable and talk Mm -hmm. about those pieces. I think we're seeing a shift now. I can't speak, I can speak to more of the law enforcement folks in the U S I can't speak about the U S military, not familiar with that culture in Canada. We are seeing a very gradual shift, but we are seeing an increased openness to this. And this really came out as a result of one of our general who's very famous now, Ramiro Dallaire, who came back from Rwanda and himself developed a very public, had a very public breakdown and very openly became an advocate talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. So having, you know, champions who can break some of that stigma can be really helpful, but let's not kid ourselves. There are taboos in many other professions too. Physicians can be a very difficult profession to break through. Uh, the legal profession, there's still a lot of, um, there's a lot of stigma and taboos about this. So sure, the military and, and law enforcement can be tough, but I actually find them easier to work with than some of the other professions, interestingly enough. As well as, you know, a lot of people listening to this, our therapists uh, have experienced trauma and uh, w- have experienced both, you know, are experiencing both. And I could imagine a lot of people saying or listening to this and thinking, well, what's wrong with my yoga? I have to give up my yoga. I have to give up this. Where does that 
fit in and yeah talk more about that why isn't that why doesn't that rank on your list Okay, so first of all, I absolutely believe in yoga. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I believe in self care. In fact, I have a very careful practice myself. I suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, and I've had since I was young. And I have very careful, you know, I hate the word hygiene, but life hygiene, I have very careful life rituals that allow me to stay well. I believe in yoga, I believe in mindfulness, I believe in grounding skills, and I practice those every single day. What I became concerned about, I actually wrote a paper about this in 2015 called Beyond Kale and Pedicures, is I believe in, <laughs> <laughs> I angered a lot of people. Love your titles. <laughs> um, I believe in self-care and I do believe that, you know, for me, becoming trauma-informed care saved my life and my career. I believe in those practices. What I became concerned about is that they were being seen as, first of all, our sole ind individual responsibility but you know, all the yoga in the world is not gonna protect you if you work in an untenable, toxic, harmful, unsustainable work environment. So I believe that it's not either or, it is and. Mm -hmm. we, we, we need to do those practices. Conversely, I was working before the pandemic, I've done a lot of work with the uh, Los Angeles police with their peer wellness group. And there was not a single person in the room that had had more than five hours of sleep the night before. That is deeply concerning to me. So I believe in self-care, but it belongs within an embedded practice. And it is not just our individual responsibility, but of course it begins with us. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're saying it's not just our individual responsibility, mm -hmm. say more about that. Well, so this is where I'm going to get a little, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we can do whatever we want today, but that's why in my, my bio, I talk about social justice. Um, so I don't do great media interviews because you can tell I'm not a soundbite lady. And sometimes when I get the soundbite requests, they're like, you know, what are the top two ways to eradicate this? And I'm like, okay, so let's eradicate uh, racism and poverty and improve quality of education. And, you know, but I really actually do believe that, that in a way, taking really good care of ourselves as service providers, being present, being well, becoming trauma-informed, I actually do believe that's an act of social justice, because if I can be fully present to the person in front of me, and I'm going to go back in time, Guy, when I trained in the 90s, and it's not a judgment of my training, it was excellent training, but we did not have, we had hardly any training on trauma. We, we didn't talk about trauma-informed care because the studies hadn't even been done. Adverse childhood experiences, we didn't have that research. And I think back to some of the folks that I saw, my clients, you know, who at the time had the labels, we know the labels, right? Borderline, manipulative, resistant to treatment. I didn't use those labels myself, but that's what they were tagged with. I feel like we, as a, a community, we contributed to harm, right? Because we didn't have that knowledge. So now we know better. And I think that if I can actually be in a stance of compassion, if I can be fully present for the person in front of me, because I'm not dysregulated, I'm not thinking about, you know, the fact that I had to drink a bottle of wine to fall asleep last night, that makes me more present to them. But beyond that, there are times where there's so many barriers to the resources that how do we navigate that as individuals to deal with our own ethical and moral distress and frustration? It's complicated, of course. But. Yeah, no, I really like what you're saying. I really appreciate what you're saying. And I think it's, it's really needed as well. 
Um, and it feels like a what you're what you're proposing and advocating for is almost like a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And you know, I'll give you a quick example. At the start of my, I was in private practice for quite a few years. You know, seeing your typical, I don't know, 25, 30 people a week. And I got more and more requests for speaking engagements that were calling upon me to travel. And I was having this dilemma where, you know, at some point you got to give something up. And I went to my best friend and I said to her, I'm in a real bind. I love my clinical work. And yet I really feel called to do this other stuff. And I just don't know what to do. And she said something so powerful to me. And she said, you know, how many people could you reach in a week if you were out there? And I said, thousands. And she said, I, she said, what are the professions you feel need to hear your message the most in terms of impact on social justice? And I said, I thought about it for a minute. I said, okay, if you're going to restrict me to two, I'm going to say judges and physicians and physicians at the time, it was for them to stop overprescribing opioids, which is a whole mm-hmm. other story. And, uh, and, and I said, I think that if I could reach those two groups, I could have the a much higher impact than helping my 25 soldiers a week. And that helped me decide. I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. What do the therapists, the, the, the healthcare workers, the people in the helping profession who are listening to this, what do they need to take away from what you're saying? Well, I would say number one, I think many people are now trauma-informed and have really learned, you know, about the adverse childhood experiences study. But if you haven't, I mean, to me, that is absolutely the most important training for ourselves and also the people that we serve. So that would be number one. Number two would be to take a really hard hard look about your working conditions. And um, Cheryl Richardson, the very famous writer, had a wonderful quote. She said, do not confuse difficult choices with no choice. I've seen so many folks who are really feeling stuck and very unhappy in their working environment. But I think there's a difference between absolutely having zero options Mm -hmm. and making difficult choices. So not staying in a place that feels that it's absolutely not a sustainable working environment, having really good social support and learning micro strategies to reset ourselves before, during and after every single day. There's so much good information out there right now, you know, looking at polyvagal theory, looking at some of the work of the window of tolerance framework. These are things that people can Google and find immediately, which to me have become absolutely essential parts of my toolkit. Mm -hmm. And at the end, if I can tell you, I, I try stuff all the time, like I'm always working on myself. So in the fall, my goal was to practice loving kindness meditation, to have more generosity towards people who were on the polar opposite of me in politics. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. And so I did that for three months. Uh, What I've done for this month is I've deleted my Twitter, which I was using for vaccine hunting and helping other people, but I don't need to do that anymore. And uh, so I stopped social media completely for a month. So just also constantly saying, you know, how do these things make me feel? And if they're contributing to me being overwhelmed and anxious, I can do something about that. You know, again, listening to you talk, Francoise, it, I, I'm, I'm, it makes me feel as though you're you're advocating, and I really love this, for people to to stand up for who they are, mm-hmm. 
kind of like do a, an, an inventory rather than just, okay, you know, I'm going to journal and I'm going to do yoga. And again, those have their, their value, but it feels to me like you're asking and inviting them to more than that, to find a, the strength within themselves uh, to develop and hone their confidence and competence more. And that's going to really kind of like build their, their, the architecture of their being. Well, and I want to add a piece to that guy, you know, we know from the PTSD literature that one of the most negative symptoms is avoidance, right? We know that. And uh, to go back to Brian, my friend, Brian Miller, uh, in his new book, he talks about, he worked in children's mental health. And he talked about uh, not avoiding having your heart broken. And what he became concerned about is a lot of clinicians, for example, would go into a very difficult session with kind of like, oh, I have to put my shield up and my hazmat suit. And he's like, you don't need a hazmat suit. It's okay to have your heart broken mm -hmm. over and over again. It's how you prepare and how you restore afterwards. And so I think that avoidance is also problematic. I don't want to go into my job. I mean, as I said, I do very high trauma work. I work in anti-human trafficking, child exploitation. It's not about avoiding that. It's about being wide awake mm -hmm. as you do it. I want to talk to you more. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> concerned about the time here. Look, Francoise, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? So our website's very easy. It's TEND Academy, just like the Academy Awards, T-E-N-D Academy, all one word, .com or .ca. And if folks want to go there, we have so many free resources, uh, articles, downloadable resources. We have a treasure trove of free resources for folks there. Okay. Um, so you're, you don't have Twitter anymore? Oh, we have Twitter like have my Twitter. company does. Okay, okay. I just took a little personal break from Okay. All right, we'll have, that, we'll have that linked <laughs> up. Look, I'd love to have you back. I mean, there's so much to talk about here and I really appreciate uh, your angle. I'm glad I got you on here and you came on here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, take care. Take care. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. And if you'd like to join the hundreds of other therapists who are each month keeping up to date and informed and inspired about what's going on in the world of trauma, I'd love to invite you to head on over to the Trauma Therapist Newsletter. That's the traumatherapistnewsletter.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.